Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Welcome. My name's Ross. I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we're excited to talk a little bit today about how you can change the way you persuade. Now, previously, we referenced Cialdini, and he has some fantastic work on how to influence people through liking, reciprocity, social proof, commitment and consistency, authority and scarcity. And today we're really going to talk about how you can tailor some of these techniques based on the executive audience you might be briefing. Now, G. Mark, have you ever had different types of bosses and had to work with them a little bit differently based on their their styles? Well, absolutely. And it's not only working with people, but it's being able to communicate effectively with them. So as a career naval officer, one of the things that we used to talk about uh, is that at the Pentagon, you're, you have one of two jobs. You're, if, if you get assignment to the Pentagon, you're a general officer or you're an action officer. Basically, you're drinking the coffee or making the coffee. You're receiving the briefings or delivering the briefings. And so when you'd have an admiral, in this case for the Navy, uh, it was kind of important to understand how does he or she want to be briefed. We used to talk about how fighter pilots who have to make split-second decisions, if you're going to brief them, it's good to have big primary colors and things such as that, like red is good and uh, red is bad. Green is good. If green, it's green, go play golf, sir. If it's red, we need to do some work. And to a large extent for those senior leaders who didn't want to get into the details, that was absolutely fine. They trusted you with it. However, if you were dealing with an executive who, for example, was a career nuclear submarine officer, it would be horrible if you were to go ahead and try to brief that officer, well, hey, green is good, uh, go play golf, sir. It's like, no, wait a minute, I wanna see data, I wanna see numbers, I wanna see resources, et cetera. So in addition to being able to influence people through a number of different skill sets, it's really important to not be monolithic about your approach. Rather, it's incumbent upon us as security leaders who have to influence organizational leadership to adapt our communication styles to better match the way that our target audience, in this case, um, executives up to and including the board, are expecting to hear from us. Exactly. I love how we can use this to tailor our message. We need to tell people what they need to hear in a way they're willing to hear it. And we're going to talk through a couple of different types of executives. And this came from an article in the Harvard Business Review by Gary A. Williams and Robert B. Miller, and it's called Change the Way You Persuade. In this article, they identify five different types, and we're going to start with the first one called charismatics. Now, they define charismatics leaders as accounting for about 25% of all the leaders that they polled. They're easily intrigued and enthralled by new ideas, but experience has taught them to make decisions based on information, not just emotions. So these are the types of people that you're talking to are very enthusiastic, very talkative, know how to lead a a boardroom and being very captivating, those charismatic leaders that just 
naturally have a lot of people follow them. People like Richard Branson uh, or Lee Iacola. I'm sorry. Yeah, Lee, Iacola I, Iacola. from uh, Chrysler. Yeah, he was a, a driving force. And of course, like Herb Kelleher, the late Herb, who unfortunately just passed away. But he was a gentleman who started Southwest Airlines with kind of a vision on the back of a cocktail napkin and grew it into the America's largest airline. Yeah. So when we're talking to these folks here who need results and proven actions, and they're going to watch the clear focus to make sure the presentation you're giving them has that focus, what well, might be some tips we'd want to use on this, G. Mark? Well, if you think about it, charismatics get people to follow them because they're able to paint a very vivid vision. Uh, they are able to rally people's emotions because they say, hey, I want to be part of this. this. This is great. And so all that excitement that they're able to go ahead and create is often transmitted to others. But we want to be careful here because there might be a diode in place, so to speak. Uh, for those who are familiar with electronics, diodes allow current to go one way, but not the other. If you're trying to persuade a charismatic, you got to be careful not to kind of get caught up in that excitement, okay? And so in a way, we want to allow that individual to own that excitement element. So maybe you slightly undersell those areas that you think might be interesting to that particular leader. You just, just acknowledge that they're there because what's going to happen? You've been able to present merely on a factual basis. It's not the emotional charge. That leader is going to grab that emotion and say, hey, I want to go ahead and run with that. And typically somebody who's this emotionally excited about things is not going to give you a long attention span. And so what you might find is over a couple of iterations, uh, they're going to begin to think, hey, wow, I got a great idea. Here's what I found in general, and not just for charismatics, but for people. If you lay out an idea with a conclusion, then it's there to be argued with. But if you lay out a logical step of decision-making of logic, and then leave the last step out, let the other person arrive at that on their own intuition. So, hey, then we could do this, at which point they own the decision and they're much more likely to follow it because as Ronald Reagan had said, you can get a lot of work done if you don't care who gets the credit. Yeah, I love that inception idea that we're presenting here of how do you provide it so that it's clear, easy, and focused. We're essentially fighting the urge a little bit to join in their charismatic excitement so that we can still preserve our ideas through you know, simple, straightforward ways of using visual aids to, to really benefit and help them. Now, there's a different type of leader that they called thinkers. And thinkers account for about 11% of executives who were surveyed, and they are impressed with arguments that are supported by data. They have a strong aversion to risk and be a little bit slow to make decisions. They, they come to me, and, and I would probably say these tend to be the number crunchers, right? The, the financial mm -hmm. accountants. So they want to know if you're going to do something, it's really important. Very cerebral, intelligent, academic types. And uh, a case point example of this is someone like Bill Gates. And so when we talk to these people who are looking for quality, you know, numbers, intelligent decisions, they're looking for expert proof, what might be some ways that we 
talk to these thinkers a little bit different than the charismatics we just mentioned? Well, excellent point, Ross. So what we find then is that thinkers, although they're a smaller percentage, you know, they're only about 11% of the population out there, uh, which is kind of the second from the bottom. We'll, we'll cover you know, the, the least common a little bit later. But what you find out then is thinkers want comparative data, kind of like that submarine admiral who says, give me information, give me info, uh, data, let me go ahead and form a comprehensive decision. Well, that suggests, but does not guarantee that the person is going to be open to more and more information before finally rendering, rendering a decision. So as you said, that uh, these people may be kind of longer to decide, et cetera. Not always. Kind of what's driving the thinkers are a couple things. A strong aversion to risk as compared to the emotional charismatic who said, hey, let's just go do this and let's see what happens. The thinker is going to say, hey, let's make sure this is well grounded. Also, looking to understand different perspectives so that they feel that they've arrived at their decision without any blind spots. And so, therefore, what you're going to find then is that if you're trying to present to a thinker, they're going to ask you a lot of questions. And it really, really helps to make sure that you've thought things through. One concept that people tend to do is to say, hey, if I've got to go ahead and give a boss three recommendations, I'm going to stack the deck. So we said, okay, well, for dessert, we can have chocolate ice cream, we can have broccoli, or we can have a ground up glass. Well, obviously, there's only one viable answer there. And so stacking the deck like that is not going to help uh, because they're going to see right through it. Rather, what you want to be able to do is provide enough information to say, here's some viable choices, maybe chocolate, maybe vanilla, maybe strawberry, and then some compelling argument that suggests why one might be better than the other. And so what will happen then is that this, this thinker is going to ask you questions. They're going to seem to kind of move around a little bit. What they're trying to do is probe to see, do you really, have you done your homework? And does this thing actually work? And sometimes they just kind of sit there and absorb. I've run into senior leaders where they'll say nothing for a 45-minute briefing. And then at the end, they will ask extraordinarily relevant, pointed questions that get absolutely to the heart of the decision that needs to be made. And that would be typical of this type of thinker. Yeah. And if you just think of a simple example, the charismatics, they're going to love infographic charts that are very popular and display information. Now, these thinkers are looking for a little bit more due diligence because it's about building trust to making sure you're having those right sets of mindsets and data points. So how can we pull things like Gartner, Forrester surveys, case studies, pull some surveys across the industry to say what percentage of the organizations are experiencing this problem or buying these solutions? And now it's not just you saying it. It's the industry saying it. It's the expert saying it. And that brings a subject matter expertise of credibility that I think resonates very well with these academic types who love to think in numbers and have that expert proof displayed to them. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a different type of executive who's very different, and it's a, one titled skeptics. They account for about 19% of the executives polled in this poll, and they tend to be highly suspicious of every data point presented. They're often aggressive, almost combative, because of more of a, a disruption against change. 
right? These are people like Larry Ellison who really focus on power action and, and are worried on things that would provide disruption to the organization. And these people are very demanding and disruptive and rebellious, and it can be a little bit challenging. So what approaches would you take with these skeptics at, when you're presenting to them in an executive brief? Well, well, first of all, you got to toughen yourself up emotionally because these people are going to come at you. And what they're going to do is they're going to question what you've said. In fact, they may not even seem to be paying attention. They'll take a phone call, they'll wander off, things like that. And then you're like, do I keep doing the briefing? They're like, keep briefing, keep going. And what's going to happen then is that if they got a problem with you, they'll let you know about it. There's no guesswork with regard to these people. They will confront you and argue with your stuff right away. And so then how do you come in as somebody who is not interacting with this type of skeptic and be able to provide some sort of believable basis? Why should this person listen to you? And it turns out that referential authority is very helpful. That is to say, do your homework, find out who this person trusts, on whom do they rely for advice or insight? Go talk to that individual and try to either get their endorsement or get them to see you know, something that they've said so that you can then reference somebody who's already in their framework of somebody who's trusted. Remember, you're an outsider at this point. They're a skeptic. They don't trust you yet. And so there's going to be a natural inclination to push back. If you can start to link your ideas, your concepts to people that are already trusted, you begin to kind of penetrate into that inner shell. Now, what happens if the skeptic who is kind of notorious for not taking in new outside information has a baseline idea that's wrong. And of course, what are they going to do? You challenge them. They view that as a challenge to them personally, and they're going to argue with it because let's face it, for the most part, we as humans will spend more time arguing to defend our ideas, whether or not they're well-founded than we will to open our mind up to somebody else. So how would you do that? In that case, you'd want to give them a way to save face. So if Ross were to come and tell me something like to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to go ahead and um, get rid of my antivirus because I know that uh, Microsoft cannot defend itself and we got to keep investing in it. And so what you might want to be able to do, if you think that it's an incorrect, like let's say your proposal is to say, hey, if we go to E5 and, and Microsoft uh, uh, Windows, and our office environment that we're gonna have all these protections. So instead of just saying, well, boss, you're wrong. One way to give them to safe face is, hey, are you testing me? Are you just trying to, did you just lay that out as an idea? Because as I think we're both familiar with, Microsoft's more recently has done this, this, and this. You give them an out. You don't confront them and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're stupid, but you gotta break them of that or disabuse them of that uh, basis. So give them a way out of it by either saying, Hey, are you testing me, or is, is this just a challenge to see if I really have done my homework? Uh, great, great question, boss. I love the way you did it, but as we know, da, 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 and off you go. And so, it's uh, they want to move forward with kind of groundbreaking ideas, but they really want to make sure that uh, they can trust people are doing it. And once they do, they'll make decisions very, very quickly. Yeah. So this building a relationship of trust with this individual is going to be so key. And I loved your your point of how do you get into a referral relationship? 
you know, see who that person listens to in meetings, right? If, and, and what you're going to find is people typically do two things. They're either going to find someone who's like them and, and get that kind of mirroring, or they're going to find someone who's so polar opposite that really completes them. So maybe you're really good at driving strategy and having the vision, but you like a Steve Jobs kind of person, but you need that Steve Wozniak who's really in the technical to, to make things happen. Mm-hmm. Or you're really good at driving the vision, but you don't understand the money behind it. So you're going to talk to someone as a deputy who completes you by bringing those finance and resource discussions that you may just find boring. And so as you look to see who those leaders trust, who they're asking questions to and observing, and then using those influencers as recommenders for you, you're going to overcome the skeptics. And I I think that's a great approach. Yeah. And again, caution with the skeptics. Don't go for broad ideas, visionary, hey, someday we'll get this. Be as specific, as discreet as possible. Something that's a tangible plan they can look at and say, I see it and I want to do this, this, and this. Love it. Now, here's the biggest audience of executives. They're called followers. And they say followers account for about 36% of all executives surveyed. And they make decisions based on how similar choices were made in the past and how other trusted executives have made them. They're very risk adverse. And, uh, This is one where you can see you don't want to take any chances. Sometimes the guy who stands out gets fired, right? Especially if things go bad. So that's why there's such a large amount of followers. And they tend to be very responsible, very cautious, very brand driven. You don't want to do anything that would harm the brand, right? And also very focused on bargains. You know, if you can save a buck and provide some money to the organization, that can be a really important thing. And Peter Kors is, is a great example of this. So when we're looking for these people to win over their hearts and minds, as the military might use the term, what would be some ways to help some of these followers want to take a risk on something new that they haven't seen before? Well, I think what you describe when you say a follower is a leader, it, it sounds sort of like a um, disconnect, but it really isn't. What you have here. And let me use a different word that might resonate, a bureaucrat. Now, not necessarily all the time, but if you think of a bureaucrat, what do we think of? We think of a risk-averse person who really wants to just fit in with the organization, doesn't embrace radical change, wants to just ensure the status quo continues. Because, well, if the status quo continues, their job continues, and they get their paycheck, and they can go live their lives. And so from that perspective, if you think about it from that way, What's going to drive somebody who we classify as a follower, who, by the way, again, based upon this survey, suggests more than a third of the uh, leadership out there would classify into this. And in some cases, depending on the organization, could be a whole lot more. First of all, understand that they're not going to make independent decisions. They're not going to say, I want to be innovative. I want to be the first to do so. That's scary. Um, If we think about financial institutions, for example, we look at things such as cryptocurrency. I mean, why didn't Bitcoin come out of JP Morgan Chase or Citibank or um, Bank of America or any of the major financial institutions? Because the culture there tends to be 
a little bit more risk averse. And so in this particular case, you can almost categorize organizations by the type of career paths that people succeed in or vice versa. And so how do you compel somebody? By showing them that other people are doing it and they're doing it successfully and they're doing it with lower risk. And so I remember Jamie Dimon, for example, coming out, Bitcoin is horrible, terrible. It's the worst thing that ever happened until they got a couple of patents on blockchain. All of a sudden, yeah, blockchain's awesome, it's wonderful. What you're seeing then is the concept to say, you've got to go ahead and prove that any idea that you want is a fairly low risk, that it's been successful, and it has worked for other people. And so this is how you can is by being able to show use cases, by being able to do reference cases, by demonstrating that others have achieved success doing this, and actually, if they choose not to do this, they're going to be left out, left behind, and then potentially vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's a good approach, right? And and I would boil it down to two key things. Piloting, right? Where has somebody piloted an initiative within the organization that actually was successful that you can tell this bureaucrat or follower type leader that, I think we should apply it here because it has a lot of opportunity to grow. And then the second piece I would say besides piloting is a consensus driven. They don't want to be the one to stand out because that's the nail that gets hit. They want to be the ones that say, well, everybody in the room in this council, in this executive board agreed to it. So I'm willing to take this risk because we're in it together. There's no risk. If, if they come up with something unique and on their own when it's a board or a council who agrees to it. So having that ability to use proven methods based off uh, similar experiences that have worked for the organization help minimize and drive down any of those uh, naysaying follower or bureaucrats you could experience. Yeah, Ross, so you hit it down a good point, and that's the idea of a pilot program. So one of the things you're, when you're dealing with people who are risk averse, managers, you say, hey, boss, can we do this as a pilot? A pilot suggesting there's no commitment long term, it's a limited in scope, and therefore it's a lot less risky. Can we do a pilot program? If it doesn't work, we'll abandon it. But if it does work, we can then scale it up and we could improve what we're doing. So what you want to do is present these ideas in manners that represent low initial risk. And if you coach a pilot program in the terms of low initial risk, not a lot of money because we're not doing a lot of systems, which can impact a lot of stuff, uh, you're much more likely to be successful here. And, and think about ways you can use the innovative people within the company to drive pilots. So mm -hmm. let me give you an example on this. Your organization wants to transform cybersecurity. Maybe you're using WAFs or web application firewalls all across the business, but you see there would be a lot of value in running a runtime application self-protection tool or RASP to have a next-gen WAF for your environment. Now, if you had 10 lines of business in your organization, you're going to know who the risk takers are and which parts of the organization are going to be more likely to try out new things. So find those leaders who are willing to take those risks, do those pilots in those two areas, then show the progress, show the risk reduction, show the improvements, bring that back, and you're going to have fantastic 
results that you can scale to a larger place. And you brought up an excellent point because we have more than one client or customer as security professionals. So there's a lot of different business units often, a lot of executives that are influenced by what we do. We have to support their objectives. So you might find yourself that if you're trying to get an individual who's very resistant to change, one of these uh, followers who say, well, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to stick my neck out, uh, find somebody who's a charismatic who does want to try it and then use them as your reference points. You see, now what we're going is you're going past tactics to strategy. And this is one of the things that we're gonna to try to help as we do this series of podcasts is to give you the strategic tools to be more successful in your career by thinking beyond just what's the immediate problem in front of you, but how do I piece this together to achieve an overall objective? Yeah, so as you have those different lines of business, maybe they're each reporting to a separate deputy CIO, how do you have good wins with the most innovative DCIO who comes in and now is your referent to, to your excellent point to the other DCIO you couldn't convince before? Because now it's not just you convincing him, it's you and his peers, right? And that's a good place to be in. Now, we're going to look at the last one, which is called a controller. And they're one of the smaller groups, they're about 9% of uh, the executives polled and they abhor uncertainty and ambiguity and they want to focus on pure facts and analytics you know this is the dragnet uh folks of just the facts ma'am you know and uh, as you think about these types of people they typically display characteristics of being logical being unemotional being sensible detail oriented accurate and analytical and i think you're going to find this in a lot of technical roles, because these are the skills that allow people to do very well in, in these roles. So they're not the social affluent people that the charismatics are, but they're an important part of the executive population that you'll need to use things like details, facts, reason, and logic to work with these individuals. G. Mark, have you had any experiences with these types and what would you recommend against them? Yeah, I mean, without mentioning any names, when we look at an individual who tends to believe that they are loners, that they are the best at everything, that they know more than the marketing professionals, they know more than the technical experts, that no matter what you come up with, they're, they're going to go ahead and either like dive down into useless little details, and they're not going to necessarily render a decision right away. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, some things come to mind, which I, I'm not going to mention this election season. Uh, but what we find then is that if you're trying to deal with people like that, in general, these controllers might kind of jump to what we call illogical conclusions. Uh, they're, they're not going to capitulate if you corner them, even with logic and facts and things like that. They're going to find some way to come to their own answer. And if something goes wrong, it's somebody else's fault. Okay, so how do you persuade somebody who's kind of constantly trying to bob and weave out of... Uh, acceptance of the responsibility of making a decision based upon a lot of information and trying to come forward. It's typically you need a structured, linear, credible argument, but it's got to be one where you don't sell it. You kind of allow them to make their choice to reach that decision. You supply them with the information and hope that they eventually come to the point where they get it. Okay, so the, one of the worst things you can do is be aggressive. If you push your idea too, too hard, what's going to happen is they're going to turn you off. They're going to view you as a challenge because, well, by the way, they're in charge and you've just threatened that. 
And so what you want to be able to do then is focus on logic, reason, um, making sure that this is something that demonstrates action. And one way I would really leverage their particular roles and personalities is by using their egos and their previous experiences to your advantage. So let me give you an example of that. Let's say you're working with the head of identity management in your organization and you need them to do something that they've never done before. Well, what you might say is, you know, I looked at how you changed identity management in the cloud over here and you did these three things and look at the results that you produced. I, I thought that was fantastic. I'm thinking about doing something similar to this in, in this different area and I'm hoping to achieve these same types of results. How can I get your partnership or what should I think about as I'm going to do these things? So now what you've done just by taking some of that little language is you've allowed them to build up some expertise based off their previous experiences and you're praising them for that. And you put them into the role of being a mentor to kind of give you guidance for things. And, and then you can say, you know, that's a really good idea. I'd love to partner with you on this. And you've kind of incepted or done that inception or planted the seed of idea in their minds. And, and I think that's a really powerful way where you can talk to them, particularly if you can even show some evidence uh, behind how you came to this decision. So you say, here's what I, I came up with. Here's what I'm seeing. Do you think this is right? Or is there anything else I need to consider into this? Yeah, what do you and think, G-Mark? Would that work? It, it, it does up to a point. But what I think I, what I would do is I would augment your strategy with the following. Have a hole in your argument. Have something that this person who's a controller can identify and say, look, here's what you forgot. Here's what you need to do. Because all of a sudden what you've done is you have allowed that person to take ownership of that gap of information. Now, I don't mean bury something detailed detail down so you'll never find it. But what you want something is to be fairly obvious, but not so obvious as to be viewed as sort of a, a ruse or a plant. Uh, let this individual who's more focused on being in control spot something. Because another element that tends to be uh, with respect to that is these people tend to have internal fears about lack of success and lack of things, but they're not going to share them. They're not going to tell anybody what they're afraid of. And so the chance to go ahead and take control over something that they know has already worked someplace else, as you would say, this worked here, can it work here? But leave something out of your plan allows them to then jump in and then go ahead and say, well, hey, if you do this, this, and this, then you're going to be able to make it work. And all yeah. of a sudden you satisfied that risk aversion because, hey, you're not asking them to jump on something that is going to be dangerous to them because they've already shown that it worked and you let them be in control. What a great idea. I, I love that because that really enforces their ability to take that leadership and mentor role and then guide what they view as, as a flaw. And then you build off of that now that you've had a little bit of a nibble or a, a buy-in, right? Yeah, people, it's interesting. I mean, we kind of look at the Dilbert-esque, if that's a word, a pointy-haired boss, which we kind of look at and say, wow, this, this person is kind of a, a parody of management, but I think Scott Adams gets it right for an awful lot of people, which speaks to the durability and the relevance of his cartoon, is that pointy-haired boss is the person who just is not convinced by technical merit, 
by being able to go ahead and uh, do what's best for the organization. It's like what's best for that person. They don't want to know the details. They're not involved in the details. Um, you know, one of the ones that I loved, loved from years ago when he went to Wally and he said, hey, my laptop is locked up. Can you fix it? And while he fixes it, hands it back. And then he tells Dilbert, yeah, we gave him an Etch-a-Sketch, right? You just hang it, up, <laughs> it upside down. Now it's, oh, yeah, we've, we've cleared out your laptop again. Because the point here, boss doesn't even have a clue that it's not a laptop. And everything from that extreme to maybe somebody who really does know a tremendous amount of information, a, an executive who uh, has lots. Let me share with you another story that goes back to my early days in the Navy. So the first ship I was assigned to full-time uh, had, uh, you know, we had a captain who was commanding officer, a commander, the executive officer number two. Then we had department heads, division officers, and that's kind of your officer. And then we have, of course, our enlisted uh, staff as well. Well, I was a brand new division officer. I was up there in operations. I was in charge of the radar systems and uh, things such as that. Uh, so not in the electronics. So I remember when I go ahead and I get a message that had to be released or something like that, you, you go down to the executive officer who had the final release authority. And what would happen was this, is that there's always a line outside of uh, Mike's office. Couldn't call Mike back then, but you know, uh, what, what Mike was, is he was kind of like a Mr. Spock, unemotional, never came to crack a smile, never really engaged in banter or small talk but really knew his stuff. And so traditionally there's like a line standing outside to get your message. So you bring in there and you, and you hand this little draft message and say, here you go, sir, I need a release signature. And he'll look at it and say, what about such and such? And you didn't think of it. And you're like, okay, sir, I go back up. And then you go research it, you figure it out, you hand it to him because you've addressed this issue and he goes, okay, fine. Then you get your message released. Next time you come down there, Sir, I got a message for release. You look at it. Hmm. Well, what about that? Oh, man, you got to go up. But what had happened? What was he doing? He wasn't being difficult. He was teaching me to do finished staff work. And so what eventually would happen is I got to the point where I would make sure that my I's were dotted, my T's were crossed. I looked up everything. You bring this down thing and said, hey, XO, I need something released. And you look at it, look at it, and look at it, and you, and you get your signature. And then after a couple more of those, XO, I need something released. Wouldn't even look at it, signed it. I had earned his trust. And so what had happened then is by being able to understand the type of leadership role, and I will call that leadership role, not management role, because what he was looking to do is take me as a junior officer and teach me the importance of what the Pentagon we call finished staff work. But even out at sea, where you're not doing staff work, it's basically making sure you do your due diligence so you do not introduce risk for the organization based upon oversight. And that's one type of leadership, which if you tried to kind of map it in there, um, you then say, okay, fine. Well, that's kind of like a thinker, right? Cerebral, intelligent, logical, academic, need information as possible, understand the perspectives, got the input. How about another boss that I might've had? I had one who was very much of a controller, argued with everything. In fact, probably one of the reasons I left active duty to go into the reserves is this person was just so miserable to work for. Nothing you did was right. Everything was wrong. It's always your fault, even if they screwed up. And then what we find out then is you can kind of go ahead and use these five models, the, the charismatics, the, the thinkers, the skeptics, the followers, and the controllers. And if we understand these differences that we've been talking about, 
and then try to map the people you deal with into roughly these categories. Again, they're not nice, clean breaks, but in being able to do so, we start to identify influence strategies that allow us to increase our probability of success by addressing either needs for information, needs for control, needs for being able to go ahead and innovate or needs to avoid risk. Whatever it happens to be, our perception of that other person's style and accurate perception and then adapting our tools and techniques are gonna allow us to be much more successful in our careers. So I wanna give you another example to that of how I've had to adapt some of my styles. And it's this strategy called problem framing. And there's a couple of steps in here, but let me give you the background first. The first was, if you go into an argument, that's never a good place. You want to be partnering with someone so that you agree on the same solution. And you always do that by sharing the same objectives or goals for it. So we'll take a little bit more time and we'll do this in in much more detail. But whatever type of leader that you're going to, if you can agree on the same objective, same goals, that's where the partnerships come from. That's where you can show information that aligns to shared objectives. That's where you can bring in subject matter experts that speak to things. That's where you can also show pretty infographics that may resonate with those charismatic leaders. So take a little bit of time to think about what type of leaders you're encountering. Are they charismatics? Are they thinkers? Are they skeptics? Are they followers? Are they controllers? And think about how you can align on a certain framework or methodology that will help you shape your ideas to better resonate with their shared goals and objectives. Love it. Awesome. Well, it's been a really interesting talk today. I've, I've loved learning from you, G-Mark, and hopefully the listeners have as well. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast. We're going to be posting more uh, really good nuggets of wisdom here for anybody who listens and share it with those around you. If you know someone who's looking to become more executive in their engagements, more technical in their understanding of cyber terms and domains, tell them about our show. We'd love to have more listeners and we thank you very much for your time. Thank you everybody and I'll talk to you again soon.